0: That's well done. Our junior high and high school students take two weeks out of their summer. They go for a week of training. They then serve for a week in our community. It's an opportunity for us. As you know, one of our ministries or one of our core values at TBC is living missionally. We desire for our homes to be lighthouses for the Savior. And so what you can do is you can have your home, kids gather together in the backyard of your home, in your neighborhood, the friends of your kids as well as those in your neighborhood, and your home serves as a lighthouse for the whole year for the Savior. A lot of churches do VBS, which is a good program, excellent thing to do. What we're saying is we want to take the gospel to the streets. We want your home to be a lighthouse the entire year. And so if you'd like to do that, all you have to do is go to the table out there. We need over 20 drivers. We need to provide eight meals throughout the week. So we need people to help cook and clean. Uh, we need... 36 host homes where we can actually go and share the gospel. Last year, over 1,000 kids heard the gospel, and as you heard Rebecca say, about 100 of those responded to the Savior. So it's just a great opportunity for us to come together as a church to serve the Savior and to honor him. TBC Garage Sale, we do a missions garage sale every year. Last year we raised a neighborhood of $20,000. That's this week. We need men on Thursday night and Friday night to go pick stuff up. That's too large for folks to bring to us. And then on Saturday we need a bunch of volunteers to sell things to the community as they come in to do that. 100% of that money goes to missions. Great opportunity to serve their tables for impact as well as a table for the garage sale in the hallway. Stephen kicked off our series on uh, shipwreck last week. It's really a study of the doctrines of the faith. This morning we're looking at the topic of Bib- bibliology, and uh, we begin our study in Second Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen. 2 Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. Watch this introductory video and then we'll study that text together.
1: There's something written on your heart, it's the guiding force in your life. And when the storms of life come, The writing comes to the surface. Your story and all of its baggage is written on your heart. But there's another story, and God says that we are to write it on our hearts. The Bible, 66 books with over 30,000 verses. Now that sounds like a pretty tall order, but Jesus' life provides the perfect example of scripture that is etched on the heart when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness his response is straight out of Deuteronomy on his way to being crucified Jesus continues to quote scripture and finally as Jesus surrenders his spirit he quotes Psalm 22 his father's words were on the front of his mind and on the tip of his tongue at every moment but Jesus didn't just know the scriptures He lived the scriptures they weren't just words on a page to him they were the foundation upon which he built his life and God invites us to do the same but Jesus said something pretty shocking about the scriptures he confronted a group of religious leaders who were trying to earn eternal life by studying the scriptures and said to them you're looking in the wrong place the scriptures all point to one thing me for I am the way The truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me so don't think that the scriptures lead to eternal life they don't they lead to Jesus the author of eternal life and studying them is not about knowing a bunch of nice sayings it's about knowing a person Jesus to know Jesus is to know scripture and to know scripture is to know the heart of the Father for it contains the very words of God His words were meant to become a part of you, to course through your veins, to be lived out. Something is written on your heart, and it's either your words or God's. Either your story or God's story. So may you find your place in God's story. May you delight in His word. And may that word be forever written on your heart.
0: Father, we're grateful for the written word that points us to the living word. We're grateful we hold in our words a trustworthy anchor. We're grateful for the inspiration of your word, for the infallibility of your word. And Lord, as we study it today, we just pray that you would draw us closer to your heart. Draw us closer to the Savior. Spirit of God, guide us into truth as you've promised in the word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The scriptures are God's revelation about himself, a revelation about his love for us, a revelation of his provision of redemption in a stormy world. The scriptures talk to us about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The scriptures lay out for us from Genesis to Revelation a a unique story, a story of God reaching down to man rather than man seeking to reach up to God as is taught in all other world religions. The Scriptures you hold in your hand, the Word of God that you hold in your hand, is an anchor in unsure times. As Stephen shared with you last week, the cultural cloud, you can hear the thunder in the distance, you can see the swells upon the sea, and you can see the lightning in the air. What you recognize is we live in a time when that which we we hold is true is often questioned. One person has said this, I'm not sure who, I've read it many times, the Bible is the most purchased and least read book ever published it's the most purchased but least read book ever published five-year-old boy was uh, talking to his mom he looked it up from a bookshelf and for the first time he noticed this large dust-covered book his curiosity aroused him he asked his mom to bring it in. he said mom what is this book embarrassed he said oh it's a bible it's god's book the five-year-old thought for a minute and said if it's god's book i think we need to give it back to him because nobody uses it around here <laughs> how tragic but how true how tragic but how true and what we recognize is that we hold in our hands that which has the power of life and death through the one that it speaks of gandhi who was a hindu made this statement you christians heaven you're keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole of civilization to bids to turn society upside down to bring peace to this war-torn world but you read as if it were just good literature and nothing else Here's one who was not a believer in Christ, not even a believer that this was necessarily God's word. But he says, you hold in your hands that which you claim that can change the world, but you treat it as a piece of literature. And so what we recognize when we come to our study of the scriptures in bibliology is that it's difficult for us to hold to this truth because not many believe this truth. It's difficult to hold to the truth. And we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But the realization is the God of the Bible has spoken through men so that we might know who he is and how he has redeemed us. And so as we read the scriptures, the written word, it points us, as that video said, to the living word. The problem is ours is a day that's quite different from any other. Chuck, Chuck Colson actually made this statement. If you keep up with the news, he passed away and went to the presence of Jesus yesterday. Actually, Colson did, but he said, "Ours is a day when people believe everything is true, but nothing is absolutely true." That's today. Everything is true, but nothing is absolutely true. That's our culture. That's our society. That's our world. And by the way, that's the church. In a recent Barna poll, 72% of Americans said that there's no such thing as absolute truth. 53% of those claim to be born-again believers. No such thing as absolute truth. Yet we at TBC say we hold in our hands the word of God, that which is inspired, that which is infallible, that which we hold that is trustworthy. It's an anchor in the midst of every storm. It's an anchor that we can hold to. The problem is if we don't believe in truth and we don't hold to truth, then everything becomes truth. It's kind of like my bathroom scale. I've learned on my bathroom scale, if I have a really bad day and kind of indulge too much, when I stand on my scale, if I just move a couple of inches forward, I instantly lose three pounds, just like that. <laughs> I also realize if I have a really bad day, I can pick up that scale, there's a little knob on the back end, I can adjust, I can step on that scale, and I've instantly lost five pounds, just like that. Is that truth? Truth is when I got to buck on my pants, actually. That's what truth is. But isn't that the way we treat truth today? Kind of like our bathroom scale, truth becomes what we want it to be, we can adjust it to be what we want, how we want, and therefore, just as Colson says, ours is a day when people believe everything is true, but nothing is absolutely true. If we do not have an anchor in the midst of the storms, if we do not have a trustworthy anchor, an inspired anchor, an infallible anchor, there's a good chance our faith will be shipwrecked when the storms of life come our way. So what is that anchor? Well, as I've just said, the anchor is what you hold in your hand. The problem is, though, many look for an anchor in other places, in our culture, in our day, in our age. There are many anchors that we seek to cling to. Are you drifting aimlessly or you're anchored to truth? In our day and age, many drift aimlessly because they seek to anchor themselves in hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure for happiness. There was a guy who did that in the Old Testament. His name was Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Solomon says, whatever I saw, I took. If it was out there and I wanted, I took it. If you read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon says, I took wine. He became a connoisseur of wine. He said, I took women. He said, I began construction projects. I built palaces. I built parks. He said, I began to hire slaves. I began to take concubines in solomon said i did not refuse my appetite the appetite of his flesh in any arena and his conclusion in verse 12 is vanity of vanity all is vanity He, he said the pursuit of pleasure the pursuit of happiness is not an anchor that will hold in the midst of the storm it's not an anchor that will provide for us or, or, or keep us secure when our marriage goes afoul, when our kids go astray, when the disease comes, when, whatever it is. If this is the anchor that we hold on to, we will drift aimlessly off to the next thing. But we pursue pleasure. You remember this quote? I've used it before. This lady says, first, I tried health food, then transcendental meditation, then jogging. Now I am more serenely, tranquilly, robustly miserable than I've ever been before. Pursuing the things of the world for happiness. One lady I read said, I found true happiness. We went to my husband's 25th high school reunion, and his old girlfriend was at least 30 pounds heavier than me. True happiness. We look for happiness in many places. We look for happiness in escapism. The number one tourist attraction in America, you know what it is? What's the number one tourist attraction in all of America? Disney World. A fantasy world. Isn't that interesting? There's a single place we're going to go to more than the other place in America. More tourists go there than any single place that exists, more than New York City, more than Washington, D.C. More tourists have a designation to Orlando, Florida than any other place in our culture. We escape. We escape through television. We escape through computers. We escape through video games. We escape through affairs. We escape through work. We escape any number of ways trying to deal with life. And the reality of it is this is an anchor that is not sure. We escape through supernaturalism. We escape through, it's interesting, not, not the God of the Bible, but supernatural things around us is on the increase. Everybody wants to study it. It's amazing what's out there. There's a lot of bad theology, a lot of bad thought. I talked about angels a few weeks ago. There are angels everywhere. I count them in our house one time, 23 angels, different parts in our house. The angel that was overlooking my garden during the drought did a terrible job. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, they are absolutely everywhere. There's one in our bathroom. I'm a little embarrassed when I see that angel, but, you know, he's there anyway. The kind of angel that sleeps with me every night right there. Ah. <laughs> uh, we drift aimlessly when we cling to the anchor of materialism. The anchor of materialism. I watched two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when our country went into frenzy. It went to frenzy because the lottery got the, the 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 winnings of the lottery got higher than they've ever been before. Six hundred million dollars. Let me ask you a question. Be honest. How many of you went out and bought a lottery ticket? Not going to condemn you. How many bought a lottery ticket? I'm not going to condemn you. I'm asking you, were you going to tithe or not? <laughs> DL Moody said, "I'll take the devil's money for the Lord's work any day." So uh, you remember that when you. But why do we do that? I mean really, why do we do that? Why do we pursue so much? Why do we pursue stuff thinking it's going to bring everything we need, thinking it's a secure anchor as I've quoted Fred Smith many times because there's a persistent quirk in our thinking that convinces us that temporal things will bring us permanent joy. You thought if I get that 600 million dollars life is rosy, right? Right. Because you have and we have a persistent quirk that we're convinced simple things will bring us permanent joy if we can have a little bit more a little bit nicer a little bit newer then everything will be okay no it won't And so we cling to all types of things. We cling to intellectualism. Here we are in the midst of a a medical center and a university close by, and and we cling to intellectualism. Our our ability to outthink, outsmart, to earn multiple degrees, and the reality of it is when, when you begin to struggle, that's not something you're going to be able to cling to in the midst of the storm. That's our world. Our world clings to things like hedonism, escapism, materialism, supernaturalism, intellectualism, all anchors that will never hold in the midst of the storm. So what do you hold on to? What do you hold on to? You've got it in your hand right here. You can be anchored by the Word of God. When the waves become rough, when the seas become difficult to navigate, when the thunder booms louder and the lightning strikes closer, God has given you an anchor that reveals who he is so you can cling to him in the midst of the storm. And, and so you hold in your hand the word of God. you saying, You're, you know, we come from a scientific background. or we come, I come from a technological background. How, how can you be so sure this is the word of God? I spent a whole semester in seminary, read six books that semester. I went back and looked at the syllabus, which I happened to have kept, and it was a study in bibliology. So I don't have nearly a semester to give you answers on that, but we could look at it in a number of ways. We could look at intrinsic evidence that proves it's the Word of God. We could look at things like it calls itself the Word of God multiple times. We could look at the intrinsic evidence that Jesus, who is the resurrected Savior, he believed it was the Word of God. If he's a resurrected Savior, the Son of God, he could make no mistakes, he could tell no lies, and when he called it the word of god it had to be the word of god so we could look at intrinsic evidence we could look at extrinsic evidences we could look at claims from the outside etc i just want to focus on one area if you want to read more about this josh mcdowell's evidence that demands a verdict lee strobel's the case for christ both go into great detail on this i mentioned that on easter sunday a couple of weeks ago we're going to look at just one area this doesn't necessarily prove it's the word of God, but certainly if God was to communicate to us in some way, his, his way of communicating would be unique. He would give us a unique word. Now, the uniqueness of the scripture does not make it the word of God, but certainly supports it as being the word of God. How are the scriptures unique? The scriptures are unique in their continuity. In their continuity. I want you to think about this for a second. In your hand or on your phone, whatever you're using, your iPad, whatever it might be, what you hold in your hand is, is 66 different books that compile a single book in itself. 66 individual books written over 1,600 years. One book written over 1,600 years, <clears throat> written by 40 different authors from a lot of different walks in life. Written by kings, by peasants, by philosophers, by fishermen, by statesmen, by scholars. Moses was trained in the Egyptian university of that day. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a fig picker. Uh, Luke was a physician. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi. Written over 1,600 years by over 40 different authors in many different places. John wrote, exiled from the Isle of Patmos, Moses wrote in the wilderness, Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon, Daniel in a palace, Paul inside a prison, Luke while he was traveling. Written at different times, in times of war, times of peace, written in different moods, from the heights of joy to the depths of being imprisoned and the verge of death. Written on three different continents, do you realize that? The word of God was written on the continents of Asia, of Africa and of Europe from three different continents. The word of God was given to us in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Part of it was written in Aramaic, a sister language to Hebrew. The New Testament was written in the language of that day, which is Greek. And so you have a word that was written by over 1,600 years by 40-plus authors, uh, by people from many different walks of life, in different moods, in different places, in different languages, on multiple controversial subjects and topics, multiple. doesn't stop. Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, says he had a knock on his door one day and it was a man who was selling the greatest books of the Western civilization, great, great books of Western civilization. He said he invited the salesman, he began to talk to him, he spent about 10 minutes talking about the great books of Western civilization, talking about Plato, Socrates, Homer, talking about more modern books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said, I let him go on for about 10 minutes, and he said, I, let me ask you this question. He said... If, and I'll read what he says, he said, I challenged him. I said, if you just take 10 authors, all from one walk of life, from one generation, and one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, and just one controversial subject, I ask him, when they wrote, would these authors agree? He just laughed. And he said, of course not. And he said, here are your books. And here's my book. Here's a book written by over 40 authors over 1,600 years on many controversial subjects from different walks of life on three continents in three languages. Yet it stands alone from all the books on that side, the shelf from this side, because here it is, inspired by God, true, and changes lives. The uniqueness of God's word. The uniqueness of that word. Other books may inform and other books may reform, but only the word of God can transform. And he says, this is unique in and of itself. Two days later, White McDowell, this man, committed his life to Jesus Christ, which is a theme of the Bible. It's because this book is unique, not in its continuity, but also in giving truth. It's unique in its circulation it's amazing. The latest statistic I get was 2010. In 2010, there were 70 million Bibles that were published. That equals 191,700 Bibles per day. That means 8,000 Bibles are produced every hour. That means 133 Bibles are produced every second. That means two or every minute, and two Bibles are produced every second. Every second that you have been in here, two Bibles have been published to be used around the world. That's amazing. It's unique in its circulation. It's also unique in its translation. The Bible has been translated into 1,000 or parts of it, 1,600 languages. The greatest bestsellers of our day may get translated at the most into 20, 30 languages. That's it. The Bible has been translated into over 1,600 languages. Currently, there are over 2,000 people working on translating portions of our scripture. Isn't that amazing? It's unique in its continuity, it's unique in its circulation, it's unique in its translation, it's unique in its survival. You think about the Bible and how many people have attacked it, how many people have gone up against it, it's absolutely amazing. Bernard Ram writes in his book, he says, a thousand times over, the death knell of the scriptures have been sounded, the funeral procession has been formed, the inscription has been cut on the tombstone, the committal has been read, but somehow the corpse of the Bible never stays in the grave. It's been diced and sliced and vilified and attacked more times than any book ever written. You remember the story of Voltaire? Quite an interesting story. Voltaire, the French philosopher, made this statement. He, said, he, he made this statement. He said, after I am gone, my word shall last, but the Bible shall go. Within 50 years, the Geneva Bible Society had purchased Voltaire's house and were using it as a printing press for the Word of God. <laughs> How ironic in history! Isn't that amazing? How ironic! It's unique in its continuity, unique in its circulation, unique in its survival, translation, survival, unique in its influence. Anybody in here that knows Christ as Savior can tell you, let me tell you how the scriptures have influenced me. It's changed my marriage. It's changed my parenting. It's changed the way I look at the world. It's changed my finances. It's changed every single aspect of who I am because when I align myself to the word of God, I'm totally different. And so it is totally unique. I'll never forget the first time we went to the Ukraine, 1992. Uh, we were speaking. We went to speak in a school, and we asked the principal what we, what we could do there. And he said, you can do anything but proselytize. Well, we didn't know what that meant, so we asked him. He says that means you can't give an invitation. We're in a public school, and we can do anything else. I, we could preach whatever we wanted, whatever. I can mean, not do that here, but we could do it there. And I'll never forget at the end of that, uh, we, we preached the gospel, and uh, All of a sudden, in the back of the room, come three of the men from our sister church. They were Gideons. Now, you've got to remember, the wall fell in 1989. This was only three years later, in 1992. These were high school students. They had never seen a Bible in their life. They had never owned a Bible. They had never touched a Bible. For the next 30 or 40 minutes, we stood at this table, passing out Bibles to kids who couldn't wait to get their hands on them. You hold in your hands that which can influence you in every area of your life. Most of us probably have 6, eight, ten, twelve of these in our house. Do you use it? Is it just a piece of good literature like Gandhi said? Or have you opened it up and utilized it so that it influences your life every single day? The Bible is God's word. The Bible is inspired. If you look at the text that I have in front of you, Second Timothy chapter 3, he says all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. That tells us the extent of inspiration. It is inspired. That is literally theos, pneumatos. Theos, the word for God. Pneumatos, we get pneumonia for it. The word for breath. Literally, it is the breath of God. When when Paul writes these words, he says all scripture, that's the extent of all the word of God, is theos pneumatas, God breathed, it's the very breath of God. It's everything that God wanted to communicate and reveal to us. The purpose of that inspiration, if you look at that verse, it, it says the purpose is so that we might be profitable. Profitable for what? For four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. We teach what is right, we reprove what is not right. We correct correction is how to get right, and training is how to stay right. That's what we do. What we recognize is that the Word of God, that which has been given to us, that which we hold, makes us adequate and equipped for every good work. So when you look at this particular section of God's Word, or when you look at what God's Word says about itself, it claims to be inspired, that is, the very Word declared by God to man, through their personality, inspired by the Spirit of God, to give to us what we hold in our hands without error. That's what we're talking about. D.L. Moody said, "God did not give us His Word to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives." That's what the Word of God does. That's the purpose of the Word of God, and that's why we study the Word of God, and that's why we read the Word of God. This guy's name is William K. Harrison. William K. Harrison is one of the most decorated soldiers out of World War II. He became a three-star general. When he was a cadet at West Point, he knew Christ as a Savior, but he was not a man of the Word. He, he didn't study the Word, didn't read the Word. He had been to church. He was a good church man. He was challenged by a fellow cadet to begin reading the Word of God. And so as a second-year cadet, he began to read the New Testament one time a year, the New Testament four times a year. He he was one of the most decorated coming out of, I forget what division it was, and as he came out of that, he became Eisenhower's right-hand man, etc., and rose to a position of great prominence. You would say he was a very busy man, wouldn't you? He continued that habit until his death. When he passed away, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. At his funeral, it said, General Harrison... Whenever he was stuck, didn't bleed, he bibbled. That's a great statement, isn't it? He was so filled with God's word that it poured out of him. What about you? Do you know the word and is the word changing your life so that your heart has been transformed and your life is different? That's why the word was given to us. You see, when you study the word from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the story of the scripture. That's the great big story of scripture. And when you recognize that, you recognize that every single day is a day for us to live. My, my own story is a sad story, really. When I was a kid, I had a little King James Bible. Many of you did. And I had that little King James Bible. It had some red letters in it. Those are the words Jesus said. And uh, also had some pictures in it. It was like a kid's Bible. And here's what I did. When I got up to go to First Baptist Church in Marrera, a great little church in New Orleans, I'd pick that Bible off my nightstand. I'd take it with me to Sunday school class, and I'd use it in that class and open it up when the preacher said to open it up in church. And then I would go home, and I would lay it on that nightstand. Honestly, I cannot remember one time, <clears throat> not one time in my entire life, when I picked it up during the week and read it, not one time. But then I got to LSU, and I met a guy whose life was different. LSU is a university in Baton Rouge with a real good football team, baseball team. (laughs) And he challenged me to begin reading the Word of God. And then he said, let's memorize it together. So I'll never forget, we began, I thought, this guy's crazy. He said, we're going to memorize the book of James together. I'm thinking, I can barely find the book of James, much less memorize the book of James. And, but we started memorizing. And he said, okay, we've got James down. Let's go to First John. We got First John, went to Philippians. And I'm going to tell you, you know, many of us invest in a 4013B and a 501K or whatever it might be. The greatest investment I have made my whole life is reading, studying, and memorizing the Word of God. Period. Period. All that other stuff is going to become hay, wood, and stubble one day. But that investment is never going to go away. So do you invest in the Word of God? Many of us are way more concerned about other types of investments than this investment that will pay the greatest dividends, not only of this world, but the world to come. And William K. Harrison found that out. He became a student of God's word. His life was changed forever. What is the value of the word of God? We could do any number of things. I'll point you to Psalm 119. When you hear Psalm 119, you think length, because it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And in Psalm 119 in verses one and two, it tells us the word of God reveals God. And it reveals who God is. It keeps us from sin. Thy word I've hidden in my heart that I might not, Sin against you. And so what we see is the word of God keeps us from sin. It reveals who the father is. The scriptures give us understanding. Later on in Psalm 119, it says through the law, we have understanding of who he is and how to live life. And then a little later on in that same psalm, it gives us guidance. Thy word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. And so it gives us guidance in life. That's the word of God. Howard Hendricks, one of my profs at Dallas Seminary, said this. The Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to conform you to the image of Christ. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. To keep from drifting through life aimlessly, you have to hold to the anchor. That's God's word. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Her name is Deb. Bev named her, actually, and you can ask her about her name and some other things about Deb, and she can tell you. When we recently went to New Orleans, we had to go places we hadn't been before, and uh, like you, I use a GPS when that happens. And so we pulled Deb out, and uh, Deb, a couple of places we went, took us right there. We were headed to another place, and uh, as we were headed there, there was traffic, and Deb had us gone on the route to get there, but I decided I can go around another way. I knew how to get there, go back way, and miss all the traffic. Well, when I decided to go a different way, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> the first word I heard was, recalculating. <laughs> and then I took a second turn, and I'm telling you, it, it was sarcastic. She was sarcastic. <laughs> She came on and recalculating. I took a third term that went the other way, and Deb came on and said, you're just an idiot. You're not going to listen to me. So you know what I did? I muted a woman. I just muted her right there. <laughs> Bam. We've, we've made up since, and we're on good terms. But You know, here's the reality. That GPS is a lot like the Word of God you hold in your hands. It gives you direction to get there if you listen to it. You make a wrong turn, let you know about it. There are times when really I don't want to listen to this. I want to go my own way. And there are times that book you hold in your hand, when I read it, I want to go a different way too. I'd rather go my way because I think my way is better. I'd rather go my way because I think I can get there faster. Or sometimes I'd just rather do it my own. Here's the reality. If I found a dead, always get there follow that word you always get there when you take it in your own hands and decide to do it your own way chances are you're going to drift aimlessly and struggle through life father thank you for the true gps the true anchor your word thank you that the written word points us to the living word who is jesus who gave his life on our behalf Thank you that eternal life is found in him. If you don't know my Savior, I invite you to meet him this morning. He's a much greater friend than this friend I hold in my hand. He's a friend who will forgive your sins, who will restore you now and forever. If you'd like to know my friend, it's quite simple. All you do is introduce yourself to him, confess your need for forgiveness of sin, and ask him for it, and he'll grant. Many of us in here know Jesus as Savior. You live your life like I did as a kid. The word of God is not something that you use much. It's something you kind of set down on the nightstand, pick it up a week later, and hope somehow your life will be changed. It doesn't happen that way. Would you make this morning a morning of confession? God, I want to be a man of the word, a woman of the word. Get some of the helps in the hallway. Pick them up and become one who makes the greatest investment you could make that's in the word of God that will influence you, not just today, but forever. Thank you, Father, for a sure word. Thank you for a sure anchor. Thank you for inspiring this word without error forever because it will never perish in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yes,